0: We're going to be in the Gospel of uh, Mark today. If you have a Bible, it's the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the chair in front of you, or the words will be on the screen. We're going to look at a simple Easter account in Mark 16, 1 through 8 today. Mark 16, 1 through 8. This is what Mark writes for us, beginning in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James... And Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. I want you to stop there for a moment and realize that this is not just a random group of women. This is a very special uh, group of devoted followers. Mary Magdalene was a woman that early in Jesus' ministry, he cast seven demons out of her. And from that point on, she followed him as one of his most loyal and devoted followers. Mary, uh, the mother of James, was married to Alphaeus, who is also known as Clopas. And Clopas is listed as one of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. I believe it was a husband and wife and that Mary was the other disciple that's unnamed. And Clopas, or Alphaeus, was the brother of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. So Mary and Clopas, Mary and Alpha, whatever you want to say, were his uncle and aunt. And James, their son, was one of the 12 disciples. James, the son of Alphaeus. Finally, Siloam was married to Zebedee, And her sons were uh, James and John, who were also known as the Sons of Thunder, also two of the disciples. So you have two moms of disciples, as well as Mary Magdalene, who made herself part of the family just because she followed them everywhere. Verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the front, sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He has been crucified, but he has now risen, and he is not here. Behold, here is the place where they had laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you verse 8 then they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid i want to make some very simple observations today so simple that you might say well duh that seems kind of self-evident but i believe the ramifications of these observations are are huge and each, each observation also is connected with an invitation. Uh, there's an outline for you in the bulletin if you want to write things down, but the first invitation is simply to come, to come. Verse 2 says, Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. On that first Easter morning, the women came faithfully to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. Historians tell us that that is something that was only done for royalty, for kings. And the the fact that they came very early in the morning, it was the first opportunity that they had to come to the grave after after, uh, the Sabbath day's rest on Saturday. Verse 4 tells us that the stone was extremely large and they were asking themselves on the way there, who is going to roll away this gigantic stone from the entrance to the tomb. And the first thing that strikes me about our passage is that the women didn't let their question, they didn't let their impossibility keep them from coming to the tomb. Do you notice that? They didn't stay at home and wait for the news that the stone had been moved and then make their way to anoint the body of Jesus. They came, and on the way they were discussing, I don't know who's going to move that stone, but that's going to be a problem. But they didn't allow their question. They didn't allow their impossibility to keep them from coming instead they came in faith very early in the morning at the first opportunity their devotion and their love for their Savior was such that it compelled them this wasn't a matter of obligation or duty their love and their devotion compelled them to come love inspires us to do irrational things Several months ago, our youth pastor, Josiah, was up here preaching, and he was talking about when Rachel and he were courting. And she lived down in Irvine and worked at Nordstrom's, and he lived in this area. And one day he was inspired to get her favorite chips and soda, I think it was, and, and run down there and interrupt her day and surprise her with that and give her a hug and then walk away. So he, he drove two hours down to Irvine, presented her with the chips and the soda, hugged her and, and, and made his way back. Love causes us to do crazy things. The, the first date that Denise and I ever went on, that night I came home and I basically told my mom, this is the gal, I, I cannot get enough of her. And I was bummed because the very next day I had to wash and detail my boss's car. And I wanted to spend the day with her. And so my mom said, well why don't you just invite her to come, she can bring a beach chair and just kinda of hang out, you know. And, and as I look back on that I'm thinking, how stupid, how crazy, who invites somebody to come and watch you wash a car, you know. <laughs> I should have just said, let's, let's go to dinner together, but I did throw that in. I said, when I'm done, we can go out to dinner. And, and, uh, and the crazy thing is she said yes. It's like, who says yes to that? But, but love inspires us to do crazy, irrational things. What's your question today? What is the question that you come with this morning? What's the, the seeming impossibility in your life? Maybe it has to do with a loss that you've suffered. The loss of a loved one. For many of you it might be the loss of a home, the loss of a job, a business, an important relationship that's no longer part of your life. Maybe you or someone you love is is facing a scary health condition for which there seems to be no simple solution. Maybe you're here and you found it impossible to reconcile the circumstances of the world or the circumstances of your life with a loving, all-powerful God. Maybe those two things just seem incompat- incompatible to you, and you struggle with that. And Maybe you're here and you, you've never examined the Scriptures. You've never looked at the Bible and studied it closely for yourself, and, and you're confused because you've heard so many other people say all of this stuff, and it just... It doesn't make sense. But in spite of all these things, you you came today. You came today. And so congratulations. You've passed the first challenge. You've come. And I want to make it abundantly clear that the goal of coming is not church. Church is a means to an end. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ is the goal. And church hopefully points us in that direction. One of our... Our our missionaries to Ireland, Phil Kingsley and his wife Cheryl, he has like a daily post. And he shared this last week a quote by Reggie McNeil. Uh, Reggie McNeil came to Ventura years ago and met with the staff and I at Ventura Missionary Church. And uh, crazy, wild, great guy. But he has this to say he says, An airport is not designed to be a destination. No one plans a vacation to hang out at the airport or to take in the sights at their nearest transportation hub. In fact, when people have to spend more time at the airport than they planned, they usually aren't happy about it. The airport's job is to get people to somewhere else as quickly and efficiently as possible. That doesn't mean that the airport is unimportant, not at all. In fact, a properly functioning airport is crucial to the journey's success. But the airport is not the point of the trip, the airport is not the destination. And no airport can hold a candle to the destination that prompted the journey in the first place. He says, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this. The church is not the destination. It's not the point of the journey. It's the life of God's kingdom that we're after, that we're trying to get to. That's what people want. And that's what the trip is all about. When we keep people hanging around the church too long... We're taking them off mission and messing up their journey. Church is valuable. Church is important. But this is not it. The goal, the point of it all, is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and enjoying his kingdom and the life that he gives to us. And so the invitation to come flows out of our text as an opportunity to come to God through Jesus Christ because the way has already been provided. And please understand today, I'm not not talking about religion. Nobody wants religion. Religion is what people do to try and earn favor with God. Christianity is altogether different. Christianity is a message of what God has already done at Calvary, at the cross, through Jesus, to pay for our sins, to secure our salvation, and to restore and reconcile our relationship with God the Father. What God has already done through Jesus that's the message of Christianity, and it's altogether different. Well, the second observation and invitation that I want to make today comes from verse 4 of our text, and the invitation is simply to look up. As Brittany was saying earlier, that, that the Lord God would take his hand and just lift our, our gaze, steady our gaze upon him. Verse 4 says, looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, although it was extremely large. I've read this verse hundreds of times over the years, and it it finally occurred to me this week the visual reality of what's being described here. I'm sure the woman the women could have seen the tomb from a distance long before they arrived at the mouth of the cave, but you literally get the feeling that they're so engrossed in conversation. They're so preoccupied with all the events that have transpired that weekend that they failed to physically look up at the tomb until they're standing right before it. And it's only then that it dawns on them, the stone is gone. The tomb is empty. In 2002, a Christian artist, Brian Dirksen, wrote a song called, I Lift My Eyes Up, based on Psalm 121 in the Bible. And some of the words from that say, I I lift my eyes up, up to the mountains, Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. Oh, how I need you, Lord. You are my only hope. You're my only prayer. So I will wait for you to come and rescue me, to come and give me life. Folks, that's how it all begins. That's that's where the hope starts, by coming to God through Christ and allowing him to lift our gaze to lift our focus upon him and all that he has for us. Some of us came to church today with our heads so low, we didn't even realize that the tomb was empty and the stone was rolled away until right now, as we're talking about it. That's when the reality kind of sinks in. And to be sure, looking up takes a degree of faith and trust that you're going to see something or someone. It's believing that God will meet us right where we're at if we seek him with all of our heart. It means looking up in order to lock eyes with the one who has never for even a moment taken his gaze off of you. Over the years, my, my family and I have, have enjoyed whale watching and uh, When you go out in the boats and you get to see them up close, it's really cool. But I love just driving down on Highway 1, stopping at Emma Wood and looking out. And I've always wished that I would see a whale just kind of jump out of the water. You know, what a great thing. But I've learned that, you know, if you you really gaze and, and look intently out at the islands, you can occasionally see that spout come up. And then you can see that big back go or a tail come up. And it's once you steady your gaze and really focus and look that you see that. Or or think about the last time we had an astronomical event. You know, they say there's a star appearing in the sky that hasn't appeared for hundreds of years. And if you look at this time, you can see it. You know, the, the Bethlehem star that, to the best of their knowledge, the scientists say was Jupiter and Venus coming together. And you start looking and seeing shooting stars and meteor showers and stuff that you never see because it's so seldom that we just look up. Or when you go to the Sierras and you get up so high in the sky that you feel like you could just kind of reach out and touch the Milky Way. And you start seeing what's going on all of the time, but we're just oblivious to that as we go about our lives and as we get buried in our responsibilities and the things that stress us up. And so God invites us to look up, to steady our gaze upon him. The final invitation, which is actually in the form of a command is in verse 7 of our passage and that's to go tell and to share verse 7 says but go tell his disciples and peter he is going ahead of you to galilee and there you will see him just as he told you the command to go and to share is i don't think it's evangelistic in nature because the disciples already knew jesus they already had a relationship with them, So it wasn't an invitation to, to share the good news of the gospel with them for the first time. The, the command to go share was really to encourage them, to renew their hope. And notice the wording uh, of the text there. It says, go tell his disciples and Peter. And I, I don't believe this is as many suggest that Because Peter denied Jesus, he was no longer considered a disciple. And I don't think it's there for emphasis, as if to say, go tell the disciples and even Peter. I think that phrase, and Peter, is simply communicating that Peter was in a different geographical location than the other disciples. And maybe that's because he was married and had a wife and his own family, and he was back in Capernaum, where his house is right by the ocean. Or perhaps because of his shame at denying his his Lord three times, he was just off secluded, isolated, because he was just so ashamed of his lack of courage at the right moment. But whatever the case, whatever the case, the disciples needed encouragement. They needed to have their hope renewed. And there's really an important principle here that I think we, we dare not miss. And that is that tragedy and crisis can either drive us to isolation and despair, or it can unite us together, and it can unify us. The choice is ours, and the outcome depends on how we, disp- how we respond in moments of crisis. On September 15, 2001, just after the horrific events of 9-11, At a national prayer service, Max Lucado offered the following words. This is only an excerpt of what he said. But he said, Dear Lord, we're still hoping that we'll wake up. We're still hoping that we'll open a sleepy eye and think, what a horrible dream. But we won't, will we, Father? What we saw was not a dream. Planes did gouge towers. Flames did consume our fortress." People did perish. It was no dream and dear Father, we're sad. But, but we thank you dear Father for these hours of unity because Christians are now praying with Jews. Republicans are finally standing with Democrats and skin colors have been covered by the ash of burning buildings. We thank you for these hours of unity and we thank you for these hours of prayer The enemy sought to bring us to our knees, and he succeeded. But he had no idea that we would kneel before you. And he has no idea what you can do. And so do again what you did at Calvary. After three days in a dark hole, you raised and rolled the rock and rumbled the earth and turned the darkest Friday into the brightest Sunday. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. Turn our tragedy into triumph. Turn our crisis into celebration. My observation comes from verse 6. When the angel said to the women, do not be amazed. It, it, it totally loses the impact of the original language. The original language is communicating, don't, don't be terrified. Don't be alarmed. These women were freaked out. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say that they were, they were probably in shock over all that they had taken in. And the angel commanded them to share the good news, but look at verse 8 to see how they responded. Verse 8 says, They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Matthew's gospel account of the same story informs us that Jesus actually went and met them on the road, on their way as they're fleeing. While they're in flight, Jesus goes and meets them and encourages them and strengthens them and redirects them. Matthew 28 verses 9 and 10 say, And behold, Jesus went and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but go and take word to my brothers and sisters to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The angel at the grave and Jesus on the road as he met the women charged them with proclaiming the good news of the resurrection, not just for the disciples that hadn't witnessed that and didn't know that he had risen yet, but I believe also for their own well-being, for they themselves. They needed to process everything that they had witnessed and taken in that, that weekend. It would have destroyed them to not have had an outlet to share The joy of what they had discovered and and come upon at the tomb. Their emotion was bursting within them. But fear initially shut them down. Fear initially silenced them. Jesus came and drove away the fear and re-energized them for their mission. Simple observation, friends. God created us to live in community. He designed that we be born into a family with a mother and with a father. He never intended us to do life alone, to kind of just go somewhere and seclude ourselves. We were meant to do life together, to share our stories with one another, whether that be tragedy or loss, whether it be the devastation of the Thomas fire, the loss of a loved one, or the blessing of the birth of a new baby into a family. The, the highs and the lows were meant to be shared together. Satan is the one that wants to silence us, that wants to shame us, that wants to drive us into isolation. But he knows that he's already lost the battle. And so his strategy is simply to inflict as much pain and destruction while he still can, as long as this earth is still around, this present world as we know it, until it comes to an end. I read a story several years ago that, in my estimation, better than anything I've ever read, captures this. And I want to share it with you as we close today. The story goes, one day an enormous eight-foot snake slithered its way right through the front door and into the kitchen of a simple home of some missionaries. Terrified, they ran outside and searched frantically for a local who might know what to do. Very soon, a machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue calmly marched into the house and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant with the head of the snake in hand and assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch, he warned. It was going to take a while for the snake to realize that he was dead. A snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving even after decapitation. For the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the enormous snake thrashed about, smashing furniture and flailing against walls and windows and wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Folks, Satan doesn't realize that he's dead. His power has been defeated. His control is disarmed at the cross when Christ died for you and died for me. And the message of Easter Sunday this morning is that there's power, there's hope, there's healing, there's forgiveness because of his finished work. The challenge and the invitation of our text is to come to God through Jesus Christ the way has already been prepared. It's to look up from our circumstances and from the things that terrorize us and and weigh us down and to fix our gaze upon the only one who's able to deliver us. And finally, it's to share the good news, to share with those who have never heard and also with those who need to hear it more than once. Let's pray.